Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure, and God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we might share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Father, as I begin now to unfold this passage, I pray for the Holy Spirit to come in power, that unbelieving hearts would be melted, that sight would be given to see spiritual reality, that rebellion would be subdued, perplexity would be clarified hiding would be revealed and I pray for protection for me from my own sinfulness and my own fallibility that nothing I say would be unbiblical or imbalanced or unloving And I pray that you would give ears to hear so that every saint would be made strong for the day of trial and every unbeliever would be converted to the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus. Let this hour not have been wasted in those two ways, I pray, but rather may there be strength for the saints and salvation for the sinner. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that the Christian life has two sides to it. There's a restful side and there's a wrestling side. I mentioned this last week. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you what? Rest. There's a restful side to Christianity, or Paul said, um, "Let your request be made known to God, 
and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds. So rest and peace are in the Christian heart. There is a restful, peaceful side to our faith. And then there's this other side, the wrestling side. Jesus also said, Strive to enter by the narrow gate, for many will try and will not be able to enter. And the word strive there is agonizo. Sound familiar to an English word? Agonizo is the Greek word. Wrestle, agonize, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Or Paul at the end of his life said, I have kept the faith, I have fought the good fight, I have run and finished the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So there is the running and there's the fighting and there's the striving and there's the wrestling side of Christianity. Now, the relationship between these two is not such that you do one today and one tomorrow. This is the rest day, that's the wrestle day. Rather, they relate like this, at least in two ways. And this If you get this, you've got Christianity. You've got the essence of living the Christian life. They relate like this. Our main aim in wrestling is to rest in God, not money or position or earthly pleasures or achievements. In other words, the aim of wrestling is rest. And the great enemy of our souls with whom we must must wrestle is constantly telling us through the manifold lies of sin that there's a better place to rest than God. Rest in a retirement plan. Rest in a special new thing you've bought. Rest in some great achievement. Rest in the way you dress. And you must fight against that rest for the other rest. So you see how interwoven they are. They're not separate things. That's the first way they relate. Here's the second way. In all of our wrestling running, striving, fighting against sin. Like last week we said, lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin and run the marathon because people are surrounding you saying, it can be done, we did it by faith, do it. When we do that, we do that in the restfulness of spirit knowing that our captain has already run the race, fought the fight, got the victory for us, and will secure us for that day of triumph. We run as victors. We don't run with nail-biting, I wonder if I'll really persevere. I wonder if I'll really be saved in the end. I don't have any security, and i got to run, and i got to work, so that maybe... I'll be secure someday. The restfulness is in and under and through the wrestling. We fight as those who know the outcome. And the 
evidence of our being secured in the outcome is the valiancy with which we fight and run. Now, the book of Hebrews is a mature and sober book about the stress of Christian living and the pain of Christian living and the endurance required to run and wrestle and fight. And it's not a book to which people gravitate, especially teenagers and young, strong adults, unless, and there are many, and I think more at this church perhaps than you might realize, unless they have suffered. Teenagers have suffered. They're pretty energetic folks, and so real resilient, and they come back quick, and they don't talk to the parents about it much, about what happened at school, about a relationship. My point is, the more your life has been easy and unaffected by pain and assault, the less you will be drawn to the spirituality of this book called Hebrews. And the more you have tasted heartache and stress and hostility and disappointment and frustration and sickness and loss, the more this deep, mature, hard book will sound like it's got answers. And I need to know what this book says. The more you've suffered, the more you will cling to the precious teachings of chapter 12 if you believe them. And that's a big if. I was with uh, some of you Wednesday night at the Hansons at the baptismal celebration in the pool there. And I was talking to one of you and you were telling me about several conversations you had had recently with people who do not believe this teaching. There are numerous professing Christians who when they read a chapter like John just read to us, will do anything but let this text say what it says and mean what it means. It is not a feel-good chapter about how to make the best of your troubles. It's not even a chapter about how God makes the best of your troubles. It's a chapter about the massive, sovereign God who is sovereign over and in and through the evils and the pain of our lives. Sam Crabtree preached to us on his candidating Sunday, a very powerful message. We could just play it again this morning to make the point again, but it's good to see it from different parts of Scripture. He used Romans 8, I'm going to use Hebrews 12. It's a message pervasive in the Bible. If you believe it, it will be very powerful for you. 
So the question I pose you at the outset is, will you accept, and perhaps you won't now, but will at the end, will you accept the mystery of God's providence in the pain of your life? And, as verse 11 says, be trained by it for the sake of good and peace and holiness and righteousness and life. Or will you kick against this chapter and say, No, my God is not like that. It can't be like that. And demand of him that he give a greater account of himself in your pain than he does in this chapter. Now here's the outline. I think we should do three things with these verses. Number one, I think we should walk together through the passage noting the pain. I want you to see the pain and the suffering in this set of verses. Second, we want to ask about that pain. What kind is it and where did it come from? Third, we want to ask, is there a design in it? Is there a purpose in it? And whose might that be? Those are the three questions we'll take up. So number one, let's just look so that you can see the pain in this text. Now, keep in mind, it's good that we're preaching through Hebrews because we can constantly keep in mind the bigger context, which is wonderful because it gives you a more solid footing and keeps your bearings as you move through and guards you against plucking things out of context. Remember two weeks ago, middle of verse 35 in chapter 11 to verse 38, mocked, scourged, sawn into, imprisoned, killed by the sword, going about in goatskins, sheepskins, living in caves of whom the world was not worthy. Remember those great saints. Then last week, remember, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. There never has been a death more horrid than the torture of a cross. And the shame that went with it as he hanged naked there. And all this text today is doing is taking the first step in the Old Testament saints, the second step in the life of Jesus, and bringing it right into the life of this church. And what I'm doing as a preacher of the Word of God is trying to bring it right into your life. It's the same thing. Suffering of the Old Testament saints. Suffering of our Lord Jesus. And we will now see the suffering of this church to whom he's writing here. The first glimpse we get of it, not in the book, but in the text, is verse 3. Consider him, this is Jesus, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now, why would he say that unless the same thing that happened to Jesus is happening to them? Something is happening to this church that causes him to be concerned that they're growing weary 
and they're just about to lose heart. We've seen this all through the book of Hebrews. Their, their hands are drooping. Their knees are getting weak. They're starting to drift. And it isn't just because they're bad people. It's because life is hard. That's what's, that's what's happening here. And he says, remember Jesus, consider him. He too had this hostility come against him from sinners so that when you look at him, you won't grow weary and lose heart. It's normal, folks. It is normal to battle with growing weary and losing heart. That's why the church exists. The book of Hebrews is written to keep that from happening. I preach mainly for saints. And it is such good news for saints that I expect that when unbelievers come and when you go out, they'll hear this good news and want it and believe it. But mainly, I don't want you to lose heart. And everything in your life conspires through pleasure or pain to detract from the one place where heart heart can be maintained. So that's the first glimpse we get of their pain. Here's the second one in verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners. Notice it's hostility coming against him. And I presume since he draws their attention to that, that's the kind of thing that was happening to them as well. Hostility from adversaries. Here's a third glimpse. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In other words, things could be worse, but they're bad. Nobody evidently in this church has been martyred yet. We know from chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, that some were imprisoned and some were plundered. Their property was taken. So there's communal hostility against the church, some of it official, otherwise prisons wouldn't be involved, some of it probably just like mobs. And so the stress is absolutely immense. Picture yourself trying to sleep at night, not knowing whether your house would be surrounded by hostile mobs that would break out all your windows or set your house on fire or perhaps do something worse. The blood hasn't been shed yet, but the very mention of it is ominous, isn't it, in verse 4. Since he directed their attention to Jesus who shed much blood and then said... You haven't come to that yet. Another glimpse of it in verse 11, down near the end of the text. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Well, that's, that's, thank you for that. And I mean that. I am so glad. I, I'm, I, I've got a theology of joy, right? I write books about joy. And this text says very clearly that there are seasons in life where sorrow has the upper hand. And clouds move in between us and the sun of righteousness and cast a shadow across our lives. And he's very sober, very realistic here. All discipline for the moment 
seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, painful. Now, I would direct your attention to the little word, seems. I think he chose that word not to belittle the greatness of the sorrow or the reality of the cloud, but to say true Christians always have a remnant of joy. True Christians never forget that behind the cloud there is a smiling face. And joy, while not having the, the face, not having the arms, the toes, still has the heart, deep down, still there. And there's a seemingness, and it's big about this suffering. But if you ask those who know Christ in the midst of their hardest times, is there any cause for joy? They would say, there is. And they could tell you a few of them. This text is one of them. It is hard in the midst of those times to feel that just like it's hard for a two-year-old to understand what in the world daddy just hit her on the thick thigh for. Why did he do that? Does he love me? I thought he loved me. Why did he hit me? Why did he spank me? I do believe in spanking. I'll go to jail to defend spanking. There's a world of difference between beating a child in anger and spanking a child in love. But a two-year-old doesn't know much of that. And I believe in spanking one-year-olds. Talk about that later in another seminar. (laughs) My conclusion from this first point is there's a lot of pain in this church that he's writing to, tremendous stress, some form of hostility, wrestling with great sorrow, a a growing weary in it so that they're just about to lose heart, and the book is written to keep that from happening. Here's my second question. What kind of suffering is it, and where did it come from? And the first answer we've already seen, very simply, it's coming from hostile adversaries. This was true back in chapter 10, imprisonment, plundering. It was true in chapter 11, verses 35 to 38. You don't get sawn in two by anybody but an adversary. We see it most clearly in verses 3 and 4. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. There's the phrase. That's a key phrase. Such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So the link with Jesus draws out the link with hostility. And so the the main source of pain in this chapter is persecution. Short of martyrdom so far, but it may be on the way. Now, where did it come from? Who's doing it? Who's in charge of doing it? 
and verse 3 said, Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners. That's who's doing it, right? Sinners have expressed hostility and shown it against Jesus, and now they're showing it against these Christians. That's the first answer, and it is not the main answer. Nor the most important answer, nor the answer on which this entire text is built. It's an incidental answer. The main answer is, God is in charge here. He is in ultimate control of this hostility that is being shown against them. And what they are experiencing under the lash or in the prison or the mockery is, according to this text, the discipline of God. That's the burden of this whole text, is it not? That God is disciplining His people. Now let's get it before us. Read it from the text. Don't take it from my mouth. Let's read verses 5 to 7. After describing what they're in for and what they're dealing with, and how they're growing weary and losing heart in this awful battle against the hostility that's being shown against them, he says to them in verse 5, quoting Proverbs 3, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. Verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you are enduring. In other words, what the adversaries are doing out of sinful hostility, God is doing out of fatherly discipline. Let me say that again. You've got to hear this. This is incredibly important. And this is what is not believed by millions of professing Christians. It says that what adversaries are doing to Christians, to you, out of sinful hostility, God is doing to you out of discipline by a loving Father. Notice, it does not say that God looks on while hostile sinners and Satan beat you up and then come into you and say, I can fix that. I can even turn that for your good. That is not what the text says. It says something totally different. It says God is disciplining, he's teaching, he's correcting, he's transforming. In other words, God has a purpose and a design in what is happening to us. God is the ultimate doer here in these things. 
Look at verse 6 again. Let's get this phrase, this shocking phrase in this context right before us. Second half of verse 6. It goes so far as to say, God scourges. Now that word is used in chapter 11 along with imprisoned, killed by the sword, sawn in two, scourged. God scourges every son whom he receives. Who is scourging? Who is spanking? Who is whipping? God is. God is not a passive observer in our lives while sinners and Satan make us miserable. He rules over sinners. He rules over Satan. And they unwittingly and with no less guilt and accountability fulfill His wise and loving purpose for the discipline of our lives. Now this is not believed by many Christians. It's just not acceptable. As clear as it is on the face of this text. They say, God is not in charge of the world. He deeded it over to Satan. He has limited himself by the free will of these hostile people and cannot, dare not, intervene and does not design and does not work in and through these sinful acts of Hostility. Well, the text says that the hostility of sinners against these Christians is real. It is wrong. They are responsible for it. They are guilty for it. And, and this is our hope, it is the loving, painful discipline of our Heavenly Father. That's what the text clearly says. It does not say God watches Satan do it or watches the free will of men do it and then comes in and makes it all work for good. That's not what the text says. That's called repair, not discipline. It's the difference between a surgeon who plans the incision and the emergency room doctor who just fixes you after a freak accident. There is a difference. The surgeon plans, he thinks, how can I heal? How can I bless? How can I save? How can I make whole? That's the questions surgeons ask before there's any cut. The emergency room doctor gets cuts. He's got to be creative and then fix it up best he can. This text is about surgeon, our surgeon in heaven. It's clear what the text says. Now, someone might ask, does this principle of discipline apply to things like natural calamities, hurricanes, flooding, and sickness, cancer? Alzheimer's, ulcers. Yeah. 
Is God in all of those things sovereignly working discipline in his people's lives? Or, or are we only talking about persecution here and those things are in another category and God has nothing to do with those and they have no bearing on the discipline of our lives to bring about holiness and life? Now, to answer that question, I would ask a question. And I want you to try to answer this as I pose it. Which is harder for God to do? Or harder for us to conceive of God doing? To attribute to God the hostility of sinners against his people, torturing them, or to attribute to God the destruction of a hurricane or flood. Which is harder? Which creates more problems for God and for us? Now, I think the answer is, it is much harder to attribute to God sovereign control of the hostility of sinners against his people than it is to attribute to God the effects of a hurricane. The reason is this. In both cases... Pain is caused. Horrendous pain. When people crucified Jesus, there wasn't any greater pain to bring on a human body. And when hurricanes flatten a bridge or a building and crush hundreds of people, that's pain. So in both cases, whether the free will of man is beating up on somebody or whether a hurricane is beating up on somebody, pain is a mega problem and issue to deal with. But in the case of hostility, you got another mega problem to deal with, namely the will of man. And to say that God somehow overrules and guides and has a design in the wickedness of those who beat up on Christians is more and harder than to say that God guides the winds. Now, if that's true, this text says that the harder thing is true. And therefore... I can't imagine why anybody, having believed this text, would want to deny the easier thing. Did that make sense? I wonder. I'm trying to read your faces here. How much do I have to say again of what I just said? It is more problematical theologically to believe that God rules the wills of men in the hostility they bring against Christians than it is to believe that he rules hurricanes that only cause physical pain. This text teaches that God makes the hostility of people his own discipline and thus does the harder thing theologically. Therefore, it's a piece of cake to believe that he rules hurricanes. If you can handle the one, which is so much harder to handle, you can handle the other. And many people do not handle the one. They simply don't believe it. 
And I want you to believe it. So my conclusion on this second point is that God disciplines us both in persecution and in cancer. And I said to Glenn this morning, I said, this is going to be a hope-filled and a hard word. And I could name a dozen others of you. One of you, I know because of an email you sent me this week. I've sent you one back. I hope you got it. I bless you for that email. Told the story of how she was so thankful. I'll let her tell the story to you sometime if she wants to. That years ago, she came into this strong teaching about the sovereignty of God over pain before she had to go through what she just went through in this last year. And she extolled the goodness of God and made my heart leap that God had ministered so deeply to her. Now, if you're wondering whether my conclusion rests on logic, that was a logical thing I just did for you there. It doesn't. It rests on Exodus 4.11. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You don't have to depend on logic to believe these things. All you have to believe is the Bible. Exodus 4.11. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing? And I know perfectly well that there are blind people in this room. Kathy just taught Sunday school. I love Kathy. We'll let Kathy give her testimony sometime. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? If you, in order to have hope in this life, need a limited God, you're not going to get it at this church. If you find hope in a God who, now we move to point three, briefly here at the end, who has a design. My third question is, is there a design in it? Okay, I hear you saying this hard thing that he rules somehow mysteriously in his sovereignty and his providence over both the hostility of evil people and the hurricanes and the diseases. I hear you saying that. What in the world is he up to? If you will find hope in believing that he is up to something gloriously good, then you'll find hope here and in this text. So let's just briefly look at this, this third thing. What's the design? It's real clear. It's just as clear as daylight in this text. Verse 6. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. So my first answer to the question is, it's a loving design. If you hurt this morning, if you're sitting there and you can hardly move and you wish I'd quit preaching so you could get up, because your back is killing you, or there's something in your life that's incredibly painful, like a marriage, 
The question I have for you is, will you believe this? Will you believe that it is love from a Heavenly Father? I'm not asking you to understand fully. I'm asking you to believe. This whole section is about faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, those people who were sawn in two. By faith, they were killed by the sword. By faith, they were imprisoned. And so it will be with you. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God is dealing with you as sons. It isn't hate. It's love. It isn't slavery. It's sonship. You're not being taken out and beat up like a slave would be beat up. You're not an enemy of God. And yet everything in your flesh cries out, Quit treating me as your enemy. You feel it? He won't answer probably why it's your turn now. And so and so, he deserves it. He won't probably answer that question. He won't tell you why now and not later. He won't tell you why this much pain and not less. He won't tell you why it's lasting this long and not that long. He just tells you, if you're willing to believe it, I really love you in this. I really love you in this. And I am wise, and you need to trust me. Verse 10, in the middle of the verse, He disciplines us for our... Let's, let's, let's collect the words now as we close. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You get all those words? Good, holiness, peace, righteousness. When you cry out, and I don't doubt that I will cry out also in the day of my calamity, why? I hope that after a message like this and many others and Sunday school classes, that even though what we mean in that hour of agony is, why me? Why now? Why this much? Why this way? There is a why. There is a why. The question is, will you take it? God inspired this chapter so that you'd have a why. It's a big, broad, solid why. It is not a specific why. Why you, why now, why this much, why this long. But it's a big, broad, solid rock on which you can stand. So my closing exhortation is verse 9b. You see the second half of verse 9 there? It says... Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. The question you have now as we go is this. Will you rebel against this chapter? Will you kick against this teaching? Or will you do what verse 9 says? Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. If you will submit to a sovereign, loving, fatherly, 
design in, over, and through all the pain of your life, you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what the text is for. That's where we began. There's a wrestling in the Christian life. And we're prone to grow weary, especially if we're sick. Grow weary, lose heart. Especially if someone we love is sick. Especially if it's late nights and early mornings. Especially if it's a little child who's sick. We will not grow weary and we will not lose heart.